In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I think I probably say this every Monday, Thursday sermon, so I'll say it again this year. Our gospel reading has a lot going on, and this is a service that has a lot going on. It's the one time of year where in a Eucharistic setting we have the washing of feet to commemorate that event, to commemorate Jesus' washing of his disciples' feet, and to demonstrate the servant nature of the Christian life, that we are to love God and to love one another. It's also the night where we commemorate the institution of the Eucharist, given in the new commandment that Jesus gave to them. The Latin word mandatum is where we get the word mondi, so it's commandment, Thursday, as we look to that event and the institution of the Eucharist, which we will remember tonight. And then, of course, it's in our liturgical context, the arrest of Jesus as well, as we end the service with the stripping of the altar, which only happens once a year, and with those keeping watch through the night, as Jesus um, admonished us to do. So we're going to wash feet here in a little bit, and let me just start by uh, revealing a choice I made this year, which is to have not arranged to have anyone's feet washed before the service like I've done in the past. And that's purposeful, because I want four to six of you to think and reflect if you would like to have your feet washed after the sermon, and when that time comes, just to invite you forward. And if 10 of you come, then Father Steve and I will wash 20 feet. And uh, if three of you come, we'll ask for at least one more. But instead of arranging it this year, I want, I want you to see if you are led to present yourself to have your feet washed. But I made a promise last year to you, and that was that this year I was going to preach a sermon on the sacrifice, the sacrificial nature of the Eucharist. You might not remember that, but I do. So I'm going to keep that promise I made uh, actually, over a year ago now. Um, and normally I would take this as the night to preach about the sacraments themselves, uh, what a sacrament is in Anglican tradition. Uh, but tonight I'm going to focus on the sacrificial nature of the Eucharist. In his book called Eucharistic Sacrifice, the former Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams, rightfully notes that the classical Reformation objection to the use of sacrificial language in Eucharistic theology compromises the once-for-all nature of Christ's sacrifice. That is, the moment we start talking about the Eucharistic sacrifice, the once-for-all nature of it seems to be compromised. And Hebrews 10.10 says, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus once for all. Not to mention Hebrews 9.11 through 12, which says, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. So whatever we say about the sacrificial nature of the Eucharist, we cannot say anything that would compromise the once for all nature of it as revealed in the book of Hebrews. And so, again, that was the classical way that theologians out of the Reformation tradition rejected the nature of the sacrifice and sacrificial language when it came to the Eucharist. Moreover, if that's not the only concern, but moreover, especially in the thought of John Calvin, 
There's also the, also the issue that if the Holy Eucharist is a sacrifice, then there needs to be an agent who performs the sacrifice, suggesting that Christ is not able to save us by and through his accomplished work on the cross. Because if Jesus was able to do that through his work on the cross, why would there need to be another agent doing the Eucharistic sacrifice? Finally, and related to that, there's also the issue that if there needs to be an agent, then that agent is the priest, transferring sacrificial agency from Christ to the church, making way for a misunderstanding of the nature of Christian priesthood, a so-called clericalism. Right? Priests confect the Eucharist. They're the special agents of God who get to do this. And again, so there's the once-for-all nature of it. There's the uh, kind of secondary agent in the person of the priest. And then there's the risk that that priest elevates his role to something that we would think is uh, clericalism. Nonetheless, at the Eucharist, we say, even if it's me saying it on behalf, or Father Steve saying it on behalf of the congregation, we say, and we earnestly desire your fatherly goodness mercifully to accept this, our sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. Thus, it seems that the liturgy thinks in terms of sacrifice. So how are we to understand the Holy Eucharist as sacrifice in such a way as not to fall into the errors put forward by Rowan Williams, but also in a way that is thoroughly Anglican? In other words, how do we think of it when we say and that it's a sacrifice, yet try to steer clear of Rowan Williams' concerns, which I think are valid, but at the same time, a non-Anglican way to do it would be to remove all sacrificial language, to reject that the Eucharist is a sacrifice of any sort. But Anglicans don't do that because we say it in our Eucharist, so therefore we have to reckon with this. Well, in the words of the Anglican priest William Bedell from 1624, quote, if by Eucharistic sacrifice you mean a memory and representation of the true sacrifice, or maybe even a representation of the true sacrifice and holy immolation made on the altar of the cross, we do offer the sacrifice for the quick and the dead, by which all their sins are meritoriously expiated, and desiring that by the same we and all the church may obtain remission of all sins and all other benefits of Christ's passion. In other words, what we're doing is a memory and representation or representation of the true sacrifice and the holy immolation made on the altar of the cross. In other words, Jesus. All we're doing is something that's a memory and a representation, representation of that sacrifice. Now we do it for the quick and the dead, the living and the dead, right? And by it, our sins are expiated because it's a participation in that sacrifice of Christ, right? And so by way of the Eucharist, because it participates in that one sacrifice of Christ, we obtain the remission of our sins and all other benefits of Christ's passion. That's what we say in the Eucharist. Well, that's all fine and good, quoting a, a probably anonymous, well, not anonymous, but a random Anglican theologian from the early 17th century. A bigger problem would be Article 31 of the 39 Articles of Religion which says this, the offering of Christ once made is the perfect redemption, propitiation, 
and satisfaction for all the sins of the whole world. So again, the offering of Christ once made, there's the once for all nature from Hebrews, once made is the perfect redemption, propitiation, and satisfaction for all the sins of the whole world, both original sin and actual sins. And there is none other satisfaction for sins but that alone. Wherefore, the sacrifices of masses, in the which it was commonly said that the priest did offer Christ for the quick and the dead to have remission of pain and guilt, were blasphemous fables and dangerous deceits. Sometimes the third analogues of religion don't mince words, right? So if we're going to think of these sacrifices of masses, right, done by priests for the remission of pain or guilt, this is blasphemous, it says, fables and dangerous deceits. So it seems at first blush that Article 31 forbids Anglicans from holding any theology of Eucharistic sacrifice, because then we would be holding to something that's a blasphemous fable and a dangerous deceit. But notice the double plural, sacrifices of masses. Anglican Eucharistic theology does not reject a theology of sacrifice wholesale, though it does reject a theology of sacrifice that is divorced from Jesus Christ's once-for-all sacrifice of the Mass. In other words, sacrifices of Masses suggest that this sacrifice is not connected to the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ, but that it's a re-sacrifice. Because you wouldn't use the plural if you saw the Eucharistic sacrifice as connected to the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ. Right? And so the article gets it right that in the late medieval church, it was understood that they were re-sacrificing Jesus at each Mass. To the point, and I think I maybe have even said this before in a sermon, that there are um, Eucharistic lances that still exist from that time that the priests used to pierce the bread during the Eucharistic celebration. Because remember, he would have been facing east, uh, people wouldn't have been able to see, and so he was, in fact, re-sacrificing Jesus to the point of even piercing the bread again. So I think the 31, Article 31 of the 39 Articles is right, that if we think of it in terms of sacrifices, we're thinking incorrectly. As Jeremy Taylor the Anglican bishop and theologian writing in the mid-17th century says, quote, as it is a commemoration and representation or representation of Christ's death, so it is a commemorative sacrifice. As we receive the symbols and the mystery, he says, so it is a sacrament. In both capacities, the benefit is next to infinite. So it's a commemoration, a representation of Christ's death. Again, it's the same thing we heard from Bedell, right? That we are, what we do, what I do as a priest, is connected to the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We receive the symbols and also the mystery of the way in which this is a sacrifice, right, that's connected to Jesus's, and thereby it is the sacrament because of that. Again, think about our Eucharistic liturgy in which we, quote, continue a perpetual memory of his precious death and sacrifice until his coming again. Right? That's the language of liturgy. We continue a perpetual memory 
of his precious death and sacrifice until his coming again. Our Eucharist, this Eucharist this evening, is a perpetual memory of Jesus's once-for-all sacrifice that he made there, right, our liturgy says, by his one oblation of himself once offered, a full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice, oblation and satisfaction for the sins of the whole world. Again, ours is a memory of Jesus because he made there by his one oblation once offered a full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice, oblation and satisfaction. We are not re-sacrificing Christ. I would have no interest in being a priest if that were the case. We are participating. We are memorializing his all-sufficient sacrifice on Calvary that we recall tomorrow. We are participating in that finished work of Christ on the cross. We are memorializing, representing that event. Every Eucharist on our altar is connected to Jesus's once-for-all sacrifice. And not only is the Eucharist a sacrifice in which we recall and bring into the present the once-for-all self-sacrifice of Jesus, but in response to Jesus' sacrifice, we offer ourselves as a sacrifice. So not only are we, again, recalling and bringing into the present Jesus' self-sacrifice that was done once and for all, but we present ourselves again as a sacrifice. Again, during the canon of the Mass itself, we say, and here we offer and present to you, O Lord, ourselves, our souls, our bodies, to be what? A reasonable, holy, and living sacrifice. Which, of course, is just picking up the language of Romans 12. We acknowledge that we are unworthy, do we not? because of our many sins, to offer the Lord any sacrifice. Yet we pray that he will accept our offering of ourselves, which is the duty and service we owe. Right? So again, we offer ourselves as sacrifices. We are unworthy because of our many sins to offer the Lord any sacrifice, including our own, much less the Eucharistic sacrifice. Yet we pray that he will accept it. Not weighing our merits, but pardoning our offenses. Thus, in the Holy Eucharist, not only are we participating in Jesus' sacrifice, but we are offering ourselves sacrificially. Jesus' oblation of himself leads us to offer ourselves to him in return. Jesus' sacrifice is his self-sacrifice. Jesus is both the priest of that first, his own Eucharist, if you will. He offers himself. He is both the priest and the victim. And in imitation of him, we offer ourselves to him. So not only is what done at the altar a connection, a representation, a commemoration of that once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus, but the main sacrificial work that's happening is when we present ourselves to God. Right? So when you come up here and stand or kneel to receive the Eucharist, we offer you the body and blood of Jesus, but you're offering yourself to Jesus. You don't come up just to receive, though we call it reception, but in your coming up to receive, you are offering yourself. In the words of the Anglican uh, early 20th century author Evelyn Underhill, quote, the Eucharist is the first of the church's 
representation before God of this perfect self-offering of Christ. The Eucharist is the first of our representation before God of this perfect self-offering of Christ. That threefold oblation in the upper room, Gethsemane, and Calvary, in which all the deepest meanings of sacrifice are gathered and declared. Right? So the threefold offering there in the upper room where Jesus offers his disciples his body and blood. Gethsemane, where Jesus says, I will offer you if this is the way that it needs to be done. And he does. And then he goes to Calvary for the ultimate sacrifice of himself. But let me conclude by sharing with you official Anglican theology on the matter. And I say official because it's not usual for Anglicans to have official theology in many cases. But in 1994, a document was published. It was a result of the Anglican and Roman Catholic dialogue of the United States. And they made five points, three of which are pertinent, I think, tonight. And so in this sense, when we talk about official, I mean, this is a document that was published and given support by Anglicans and Roman Catholics. But again, just focusing on uh, the element of the document for our purposes tonight. We affirm, it says, that in the Eucharist, the church, doing what Christ commanded his apostles to do at the Last Supper, makes present the sacrifice of Calvary. We understand this to mean that when the church is gathered in worship, it is empowered by the Holy Spirit to make Christ present and to receive all the benefits of his sacrifice. Right? So this isn't just a priest doing the work, right? Like John Calvin was worried about. Well, this is this is giving the church the right to do it, and it puts it in the hands of a priest. No, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we are doing what Christ has commanded us to do as the church. The second point, we affirm that Christ, or sorry, we affirm that God has given the Eucharist to the church as a means through which all the atoning work of Christ on the cross is proclaimed and made present with all its effects in the life of the church. So God has given the Eucharist as a means Right? To bring, to proclaim and make present all the atoning work of Christ. His work includes that perfect redemption, propitiation, and satisfaction for the sins of the whole world. Thus, the propitiatory effect of Christ's one sacrifice applies in the Eucharistic celebration to both the living and the dead. Right? So again, we are participating and bringing into the present, making present in the life of the church this perfect redemption that Christ accomplished at Calvary. And thereby, his one sacrifice, by way of its representation in the Eucharistic celebration, applies and has effect to both the living and the dead. And finally, we affirm that Christ in the Eucharist makes himself present sacramentally and truly. When, under the species of bread and wine, these earthly realities are changed into the reality of his body and blood. We affirm the reality of the change by consecration as being independent of the subjective disposition of the worshipers. So Christ makes himself present sacramentally. We merely ask, and Christ makes himself present in the bread and the wine. I do not confect, Father Steve does not confect the Eucharist. We are those set apart to do the Eucharist, to celebrate the Eucharist, and we ask, we, 
collectively ask, and Christ makes himself present. It has nothing to do with the subjective disposition of the worshipers. So, though this may have been a heavier sermon than you were expecting on this evening, let us be mindful of the fact that when Christ established his Eucharist in the upper room with his disciples, that we commemorate on this very night, and every time we celebrate the Eucharist, we commemorate his once-for-all sacrifice on the hill of Calvary. And so may we, on this night, Give thanks for the once-for-all self-sacrifice that Jesus made for us. And importantly, may we give ourselves sacrificially anew to him. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.